0: As we continue our series in 1 John chapter 3, we're coming to the end of that chapter. And we're looking at verses 19 through 24. 1 John chapter 3 verses 19 to 24. By this we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask, because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, to love one another as He commanded us, The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them, and by this we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gives us. Now there's an unfortunate phenomenon that permeates so many churches today, and that is the lack of assurance of salvation so many believers have. Now, I looked up the word assurance just in a general dictionary, and the definition is freedom from doubt, certainty about something. Freedom from doubt, certainty about something. And our question this morning is, do you have it? Do you have that freedom from doubt and certainty of your salvation? The reason that John wrote this letter was so that we would know without a shadow of a doubt. In chapter 5, verse 13, he puts it plainly, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. How can we know? Can we really have full assurance of our salvation? John says that we can. That's his focus, even as we come to this last passage here in chapter 3 that we just read. He says in verse 19, By this, excuse me? No? Oh. By this, <laughs> by this we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So John introduces the matter of having assurance having confidence before God that we belong to the truth. One of the worst things that can happen in the life of a believer is to have doubt about one's salvation. I would venture to say that many, if not most, Christians have had times of doubt, some some shorter, some perhaps for a longer period of time. And whose fault is that? Though there may be a number of contributing factors, the fault, the blame of that doubt rests squarely on Satan. There's one, that's one of his greatest weapons throughout history, starting way back in Genesis chapter 3. You remember, did God really say? And He's been doing it ever since. He sows seeds of doubt, and if we're not grounded, it's easy to fall for it. And that's what John is combating here. By this, we know that we belong to the truth. He actually writes it in future tense. We will come to know, to learn, to find out, to realize. In other words, it's not necessarily automatic. Almost everything in life that we have confidence in, we've learned to have confidence in it, right? There's a process and eventually there is something or perhaps a number of things that convinces us to have confidence in something or someone. And John is saying, by this we will know that we belong to the truth. There's a promise that we can know based upon the certain reality called, by this. And we belong to the truth. Um, When when we understand the by this, and we're going to be getting to that in a moment, that's when we know. That's an amazing phrase if you think about it, that we belong to the truth, the truth written, which is the scripture, God's word, and the truth incarnate, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We belong to the truth. We belong to Jesus Christ, and it is the truth that has given us life that has defined our existence And the end of verse 19, it will set our hearts at rest in His presence. Literally, it will assure our hearts before Him. The Greek word that's translated to set our hearts or to assure our hearts is actually the word to persuade. In other words, we'll be persuaded. We can know that we belong to the truth and we can be persuaded of that fact as we stand before Him in His presence. And the reason the NIV translates this as set our hearts at rest in His presence is because that same Greek word, to persuade, can also mean to tranquilize. It's kind of interesting. So that by this that John is talking about will so persuade us that we belong to the truth that it will calm our fear, it will calm our doubt, even though we are in the presence of holy and almighty God. All through the Old Testament, Any time that God showed up, you remember, like Moses at the burning bush, they fell on their faces in fear and trembling because they were in the presence of holy God. But with Christ, something changed. In Hebrews chapter 10, 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, why? By the blood of Jesus Christ, By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And this confidence, this assurance all comes from the by this that John mentions in verse 19. Now why is this assurance so important? The blessing of assurance is so that we can enjoy our salvation to the fullest extent. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 6 verse 11 says, and we de- and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize a full assurance of hope to the end, to the max, to the fullest extent. He's not talking about to the end of time when he says to the end. It means to the full limit, to all it can be for you. We should have this full assurance of our salvation. It was a writer's desire. It was a Holy Spirit's desire. And Jesus himself says in John 5, verse 24, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. What kind of life? To eternal life. It's unequivocal, unambiguous, indisputable in that one verse. If that's the only verse that we had that talked about it, it would be enough. We believe, we have eternal life, we do not come under judgment, we are out of the realm of death and into the realm of eternal life. But that isn't the only verse that we have. In the next chapter in John chapter six, verse 27, Jesus says, "Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, Which the Son of Man will give you. Eternal life, life forever, and Jesus Himself gives it to us. In verse 35, Jesus declared, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty." Folks, when Jesus says never, he means never. If we could lose the bread of life and if, uh, that, that will sustain us for all of eternity, never wouldn't be never anymore. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on verse 37. All, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Does he really mean that? And then verse 39, "And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those who He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. It is God's will. Can God's will be thwarted? Jesus will lose none. No one. Everyone the Father gives me, Jesus is saying, "I receive, and everyone I receive, I keep, and everyone I keep, I will raise. Nobody falls through the cracks. And then in verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus is making a point here in this in in that passage. From believing to being raised, nobody's lost. Why? Because it's the Father who draws, it's the Father who gives, it's the Son who receives, it's the Son who keeps, and it's the Son who raises. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, we read this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope. It continues. How does He do that? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never, there it is again, never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance is there waiting for us because Jesus will raise us up according to his father's deal. Uh, excuse me, deal is come. His father's will, done deal. Is Jesus really able to do that for us? In verse 24 of the small letter of Jew, there's a, there's a cool benediction here. Listen, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. Folks, salvation is forever. And we need to enjoy that. Even way back in the Old Testament, Isaiah wrote in chapter 32, verse 17, the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, And assurance forever. Now on the basis of the fact that if you have it, if you have salvation, you have it forever, we can talk about how to have that confidence that you have it. Having a secure salvation is a fact. Feeling secure, uh, sometimes that's a little bit different. John wants to get us to rely on the fact and to feel secure as well, to have that confidence. That was Paul's desire as well when he wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 22, In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and what? Confidence. With freedom and confidence. If we have faith in Him, we can be confident, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 reiterates this, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6 that we are to be confident of this very thing that that he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it, will perform it, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's all over the place. It's all over Scripture. 2 Timothy 4.18, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Someone once wrote, if anyone is ever to be kept out of heaven for my sins, it'll have to be Jesus. Think about that a minute. If anyone is ever to be kept out of heaven for my sins, it'll have to be Jesus because He took all my sins upon Him. He made Himself responsible for my sins. And guess what? He's already in heaven. He wasn't kept out. And as long as the Father accepted Him back into heaven, He who was responsible to pay the penalty for my sins, I have no fear that I'm going to be turned away. He was delivered for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. That's amazing. I could go on. It's an amazing truth, but let's get back to 1 John chapter 3. Verse 19, by this, by this we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. He also ends that, that paragraph with by this in verse 24 by this we know that he lives in us we know it by the spirit he gave us so he the the passage is bracketed by this little phrase by this what john is doing here is giving us the reasons why we know we are saved and that we can have assurance of it now there are a number of reasons that john gives us in this passage for our assurance and number one We have a love for other Christians, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This actually comes uh, from last week's message, so we won't spend a lot of time on this particular point. But if we go back to verse 18, referring to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, we read, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. John is saying, talk is cheap, let's see some action. Let's see some actual agape love for one another because if if we can't, well, John says in verse 10, this is how you know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone uh, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. It's a differentiation. So love for one another should be evidence of that new life, of the salvation that we have. The second reason for our assurance is if there is gratitude for God's grace. How grateful are you for God's grace? John points out an aspect that we don't think about much, I think, and the aspect of which we should be eternally grateful. Look at verses 19 and 20. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. What does that mean? This is actually a powerful truth that should be very encouraging to us. So, we're we're Christians, right? Our salvation is real. We have love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're growing in the faith, trying with the power of the Holy Spirit to live righteously and not be in continuous sin. And yet there are times when we do have sin in our lives. We fail. We fall short. And so as a result of that, our conscience is activated. And that's what John is referring to when he says, in, if our hearts condemn us. Now, if you're a true Christian, you're going to find that you have a very active conscience because it's a conscience that is well-informed by Scripture. Now, every human being is born with a mechanism called a conscience, and the word conscience just means self-knowledge, the ability to recognize yourself, people's ability to recognize what's going on in themselves. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that our conscience bears witness. That means that the conscience observes what we do, and it gives testimony to ourselves to what we do. And the conscience ultimately accuses or excuses, right? When we do something right, our conscience consci- uh, consciously informs our thought that that was right, that was a good thing. You did something righteous, we did something well, and there's a sense of well-being, there's a sense of joy and peace, there's a sense of satisfaction and happiness. We did good. But if we commit sin, our conscience also immediately is activated, and it forms our minds that this is wrong, and it accuses us, it condemns us, it indicts us. And as a believer, if we persist in the sin, it can bring us all the way to depression and fear and insecurity and doubt and possibly ultimately to a loss of assurance. It's a warning system. It's a moral nerve system. In fact, someone uh, once wrote, the conscience is to your inner person what your nerve system, your pain mechanisms are to your physical body. A person who feels no pain will inevitably hurt themselves badly or even kill themselves. That's how leprosy works. It desensitizes your nerves and you can't tell if something is hot when you touch and you burn your hand. You can't tell if you've stubbed your toe and broken a bone. In some horrible situations people can't tell if at night while they're sleeping a rat's been gnawing on their on their fingers or toes. Pain is actually a wonderful gift from God. It's His device given to every human being to warn that something's wrong and we react to it. And what pain is to our physical body, conscience is to our spiritual soul. It's a warning mechanism. And everybody has a conscience, but conscience has to be informed by the right standard to work correctly as God planned it. Now, conscience is not the law of God. It isn't even a system of morality. Conscience is a device that reacts based on whatever your highest level of morality is. If you have a low level of morality, you have a very minimally functioning conscience. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to neutralize our conscience. and He, he does it by first by misinforming it telling you that oh, you know, all that stuff that you grew up with, that's all old stuff, and that's out of date. That, that's, that's for the old fogies way back in the day. We've, invo- we've evolved now. We're, we're more knowledgeable now. The new ways are the right ways. And then he tries to get us to silence our conscience. Don't listen to that. It's misinformed. Tell yourself you shouldn't feel guilty. Everybody's doing it. You should feel good about yourself. It's all about self-esteem, esteem. after all, you deserve it, right? Then he wants to sear it. He wants to sear your conscience. The way uh, we do that, of course, is by continually violating our conscience over and over again until we no longer hear it. We've covered it over with so much resistance and so much scar tissue that when it does cry out against us, we're so good at not listening that it has little effect. That's what the enemy wants to do. But for the believer, there's something amazing that took place. When we came to the Lord and repented of our sin, do you realize that our conscience was reactivated and it was cleansed, it was purified? That's what brought us to true repentance. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, asks this question How much more then will the blood of Christ? who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, we have full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. How cool is that? He cleanses our conscience from all the damage that we've done to it. And he has brought it back into working order to function the way it ought to function. Now, we have this cleansed conscience that's sensitive to the law of God, right? To God's Word. Now that it's become so sensitive, when we do sin, we immediately feel guilty. It's indicting us. It's condemning us for falling short. So what do we do with that? Well, we should be running back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If you confess your sins... He is faithful to forgive. But you know, even if we do that and we know we've been forgiven and, and we end up falling into sin again, it's easy to start hearing that voice again, right? What kind of Christian are you anyway? You keep doing this over and over again. God can't love you. And conscience can bring you to the point where you lose your assurance. Not your salvation, but your assurance. God is greater Than my heart. He is greater than my conscience. That's what verse 20 says. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. He's greater than our conscience and God knows everything. What what does He know that sometimes we forget and begin to doubt? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God never forgets that. So where do we go when our conscience is accusing us? We go back to the position of gratitude for the grace of God. For the grace of God. God knows the worst that's in me. God knows the worst that's in you. He sees the deep things. He sees the true revelations of our hearts, and he does not condemn us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it's all God's grace. It's all God's grace. You remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8.31? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's saying, who's going to condemn us when God has justified us? What is going to separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. Nothing absolutely nothing. We go back to standing on God's Word that He, by His grace, has saved us, and we can have full assurance of our salvation. We should be grateful for God's grace. A third aspect of our assurance is boldness in prayer. Boldness in prayer. Verses 21 and 22. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, We have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. If our hearts do not condemn us, when we get past that self-condemnation stuff that we do so often because we don't feel worthy, But we know that we've confessed our sins, and now we are understanding that He has forgiven us and purified us from all unrighteousness, and we celebrate that all those sins that we have committed have been paid for by Christ. At that point, we're now walking in obedience, are we not? Our conscience is now testifying to the fact that we are doing what's right in God's eyes. And the more we walk in obedience, the more we walk in faithfulness, that self-condemning insecurity disappears and it's replaced with confidence, a kind of confidence in fact that causes us to rush into the presence of God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. John says we have confidence before God. The Greek word John uses for confidence actually means boldness. It's Boldness, freedom in speaking, unreservedness in speech, openly, frankly, the Greek dictionary says. The truth that John is sharing with us is that we can go into the presence of God and say exactly what's on our mind. If our conscience is clear, we can now go boldly into His presence, spill our hearts, he has now given us that face-to-face relationship with a, like a loving child with a loving father. That's what the tearing of the temple curtain was all about. The Holy of Holies, when Christ died, he gave us personal access to the Father. We can look into the face of God with freedom from fear, freedom to ask, freedom to share with him anything that may be on our heart, absolutely anything, and know that whatever we ask, we receive from him. Obviously, obviously if it's in accord with his perfect will and pleasure. But this is an evidence of a changed heart. You see, the sinner has no passion to run into the presence of God. In fact, they want to run away from it. The sinner has no relationship like a loving child to a loving father, but the saints do. The saints do. The ones the Lord has transformed to whom He has given that new life that we talked about. There's no reluctance. There's actually a boldness of going to the Father. There's a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a gratitude for His grace. There's a boldness in prayer. And there's a fourth element that John shares with us. And that is obedience to His commands. And we're still in verse 22. We have confidence before God to receive from Him anything we ask. Why? Why? Because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. This is another evidence of a transformed life, the desire for holy obedience. That's exactly what Jesus says in the Gospel of John chapter 15. If you remain in me, if you abide in me, if, you, if you're living in me, and my words remain in you, if my words abide in you, if my words are alive in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you keep my commands, he continues, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. This is about obedience. This is about love. Those who are true believers are known by their obedience. That's what our life now looks like. That's the outworking of our love for Christ. No matter what we do, whether we eat or drink, Paul says, or or in our words or deeds, we do it what? all to the glory of God. We're no longer consumed with our own agenda, our own will, our own ambitions. They all died, folks, with our old self. We're now consumed with what He wants us to do and what is pleasing to Him in His sight. This shouldn't be be hard and burdensome. This should be a joy to be able to do this. And that's actually the fifth reason to have the blessed assurance of our salvation. And that is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. We see that in verse 23. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Well, duh, that's obvious, you might say. You know, that, that goes without saying. But it really doesn't. It really doesn't. There are a lot of people. You remember the graphs that I put up about what evangelicals believe today there are a lot of people that believe that everybody will go to heaven there are a lot of people that believe that they're good enough so that God will accept them there are a lot of people who believe that they are saved despite the fact that they don't believe that Jesus is the son of God Jesus said I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And John says this is his command. This is Jesus' command to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. This is another guarantee that I am a Christian because I believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ. Throughout the rest of our lives, we will believe in Jesus Christ. We won't stop believing in him. In fact, that's what we're called, right? Believers. It's a good word. Here's a question. What does it mean to believe in his name? What does it mean to believe in his name? The name of Jesus refers to all that he is. The name Jesus actually means Savior. It literally means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. The Greek name Yeshua is transliterated from Hebrew and Aramaic, And this name is a combination of Yah, an abbreviation for Yahweh, the name of the God of Israel, and the verb Yasha, meaning to rescue, to deliver, or to save. So when we believe in the name of Jesus, we believe that He and He alone saves because Yahweh is salvation. That's what his name means. Believe in his name. So John is saying that we can have assurance of our salvation because we believe in Jesus Christ and in all that he was, all that he is, and why he came and what he did. And then there's one final indicator here that John mentions for our blessed assurance. And that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 24. By this we know that he lives in us we know it by the spirit he gave he gave us it's the same phrase he used back in verse 19, uh, 19 by this we know how does that happen well paul tells us in romans chapter 8 verse 16 the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are god's children <laughs> that's what the holy spirit does he himself assures us over in first john chapter 5 Verse 6, it tells us that it is the Spirit who testifies. Well, what, what is He testifying to? Verse 11, and this is the testimony. Listen, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. That's what the Holy Spirit is testifying to. That's what the Holy Spirit is convincing us of. We can't believe without the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 and 15 tells us the Holy Spirit assures us that we've been forgiven once for all. Listen, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. How cool is that? It's also the Holy Spirit who enlightens us and teaches us We read that earlier this morning. Jesus tells us in John 15, 26, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. It's only through the Spirit of God that we can truly understand the deeper things of the the Scripture. Listen to these words from Isaiah. Old Testament, okay? Old Testament, talking about the Holy Spirit. He's prophesying about the coming of the Messiah. Chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Talking about Jesus, the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, on the shoot, on Jesus Christ. Then here comes the description of the Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Folks, that's the same Spirit who now lives in us. It came down upon Christ. He now lives in us, a Spirit of wisdom and of understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. By this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. Is there any doubt We need to live that to the fullest. In a moment, we're going to be singing Blessed Assurance, great old hymn. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a fortress of glory divine. Heir of salvation. Purchase of God. Born of a spirit washed in the blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And I trust this morning that this is your story. Story of assurance. And this is your song as we sing this morning father thank you thank you that we can be absolutely sure of your salvation thank you that for your grace for your mercy for your love that you have poured out upon us and father i pray that if if we were doubting at any point that that your word has just washed all that doubt away we know that, that we have salvation. We can be absolutely sure of that. And then we can live our life out in that complete assurance to the fullest extent. Father, we praise you. And we pray that this will be our story all the day long. This will be our song all the day long, praising you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.